Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 13. And if you listeners knew the odyssey, knew the epic journey we have taken to get this recording out, you would have some major sympathy for us. Perhaps someday a Rawling like Bard will tell the story of three young teachers who attempted to talk about Hogwarts once. And so, well, having come so far and uh, having reported on so little of that journey, uh, please let me introduce for our ultimate episode on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wes Deschamps. Welcome back, you two. Hey, good to be back. It's great to have you all. And uh, so the listeners should know, and this is not, if this sounds wooden or artificial at all, that we tried to do this recording about three times before we got on tonight. And we tried to do this recording a week ago, but Anchor's software was not uh, helping us out very much. So now we're using the Zoom meeting software, which I think we're very happy with for the moment. But I had um, I had thanked Sarah Miller, and so I suppose I'll thank you again, Sarah, and I, I'll just prepare to thank you many times throughout our careers together. Um, I, I thank you for the, the the small note, the text you sent me, um, congratulating me on my 100th episode. And I, I made a big deal about that in the first uh, recording, saying that, you know, since I don't have teachers or like parents or coaches around me all the time, I don't get a lot of positive reinforcement where people say things like, you're very smart, as you did, and you guys sound so smart. And I just really appreciated hearing that from somebody I, I, I deeply respect and work with because, um, you know, as an adult, who plays the role of giver of positive feedback? Teacher, coach, parent? No, it seems, it seems more like peer. And uh, so that was like peer review that you gave to us. And even though we don't yet have many listeners, though we have put a lot of work into this, it's, it's just very nice to know that the, the few listeners that we do have, the few colleagues that we do have, that we esteem so highly also think highly of us. And so I wanted to say that I really appreciated that. Yeah. And, and Wes, same goes to you. I'm sorry. I just, I didn't include you on that text message. I just wasn't thinking. I'm sorry about that. No, it's don't worry about it. Like I, I accept the compliment via Alex it, and I, and I return it. And I'm really <laughs> glad. I'm glad that you're sticking with us on the, on the Harry Potter train here. It's going to be, and be glorious. Yeah, there's something to be said for the triumvirate. We need the Hermione, we need the Rom, we need the Harry. I mean, I think in this case, it's sort of like, kind of like a Cedric or a slash a Neville and sort of a Hermione slash, um, I don't know who else you identify with, Sarah. Perhaps we could talk about that more as the plot continues to develop. But um, okay, well, let's jump in today. So we, we were going to talk about uh, chapters 15, 16, uh, last time, and then 1718 this time. But since we missed last time, we decided just to go ahead and finish the book. And uh, we read Aragog, The Chamber of Secrets, The Heir of Slytherin, and Dobby's Reward. And so where did y'all want to start with today? What was most interesting to you guys? Well, mm. I we could go back to Aragog just to kind of take it, because I know that we're going to want to spend some time on the end of the book which is always really fun. Right. But I don't want to, I don't want to leave Aragog out. Um, his, um, his, his speech was kind of surprising to me reading this time through uh, the fact that the, the spiders can speak and apparently speak amongst themselves in like the human language. Um, I found that really interesting since we kind of looked at a little bit how Harry has this very unique ability to speak the monster's language in the case of um, slithering things, you know? Uh, so 
what did you guys make of that? The fact that these monsters speak a human language, whereas it's super rare for humans to speak a monster language. That's a great question, Wes. You mean, I think, I think one thing that's different too is that um, uh, we learned that Aragog has uh, a lot of experience with humans, particularly one sort of half human. And Hagrid, and that like, um, I, I don't know if it's related to their capacity to communicate with humans uh, in contrast to the snake and humans' capacity to, to communicate with it, but it does seem significant that Aragog has a, a really long-standing relationship, in fact, like a 50-year relationship with Hagrid. Um, and one that has involved at least a measure of care and concern. Um, I don't know if that distinct, that's a, just another way to distinguish the spider and the snake, but they do seem to be um, representative of something. I think we talked about on the last episode how they both are tied in some way to um, images or mythological stories of, of um, intelligence, maybe intelligence as wisdom or intelligence as strategy, deception, manipulation. I think that's, just wanted to throw that out there. Gosh, yeah. yeah. I think the, uh, the idea, well, basically it seems like Hagrid might have taught the spiders this, um, the language. Um, mm -hmm. He provided, um, he played matchmaker, right? He provided a wife uh, who gets a name kind of randomly there. Um, but yeah, I, I like the idea about thinking about like the kinds, the the manifestations or whatever of of intelligence that the that the the different monsters here might kind of uh, represent, uh, and it does seem in a way like the spiders speaking. Um, is is a kind of a web of words, right? It's like part of their mm. ensnarement of of the two kids, because uh, they sort of let their guard down a bit. They're like, "Oh, like you're gonna let us go now," and to everyone's shock, they're um, they're not, right? And then and then the car <laughs> comes in. So the car is like yet another kind of um, version of of that, like if the spiders have a kind of intelligence and the snake has a kind of intelligence, then the car, uh, the heroic uh, flying magical technological car represents, I guess, like the human, the particularly human intelligence maybe. Yeah. And I, so I was wondering a little more generally, and I'm still trying to get comfortable with this, this new zoom software. If I seem sort of quiet over here, I'm, I'm adapting silently. Um, I thought it was very interesting, not only the contrast of 15 and 16, or the juxtaposition, rather, of Aragog and the Chamber of Secrets, as well as the, uh, the notion of the, the mutual threats of Spider and, and, um, and Snake as well, because they're both traditionally sort of creepy creatures that we dislike. One that lays webs that we can fall into, uh, and, and there's a strong mythology behind that linked back to Arachne and Minerva's Contest and the idea that Minerva is a master weaver, sort of like a weaver of fate, Fortuna. But also the snake, 
as well as but is generally a symbol of both of wisdom but also of threat in say the garden of eden so you find these two threats that are mutually antagonistic to each other and to some extent one of them is portrayed protagonistically they can give you information on the way to understanding the bigger threat and so sort of how i see the um the the spiders is that it's not so much that they're actually protagonists so much as they're if you take the hero's journey to be a set of minor goals on the way to a major goal they are a step along the path. They have a piece of information necessary to give to the heroes, and it is only because they have that information that they are useful, but they are still a threat almost as big as the basilisk itself. I mean, there are a lot of spiders out in that forest. Uh, I'm unclear how big a threat they are, but they're, they're, they're pretty scary, and they're, they're in no way non-threatening, right? They, they are going to eat Harry and his friends if that, if that, uh, that enchanted automobile does not show up and save them sort of this manifestation of the automatic will of the father or whatever it is um and so yeah Wes what did you think about that question that question I mean truly I don't like to say the question stumped me because I I usually like to try and think it through and sometimes it happens the magic happens later than it does uh in other days but why do you think that these uh, these these spiders exhibit signs of the logos I'm starting to think I see a glimmer of what's there but why is it that these threats, these non-human, these bestial, these weaving sort of creatures, uh, are you are you sort of suggesting like Miss Flamenhoft in the Odyssey preceptorial so long ago suggested that the monster, monsters in the Odysseys, in the Odyssey were like sort of pre-evolved humans? They were like sort of attempts at making humans by the gods that didn't quite make it. Would you think that the spiders here are sort of like the embodiment of something almost as threatening as like say a malicious human or a malicious human using a snake, but not quite. Um, or, uh, uh, yeah. I, I think that, I mean, I, I think that they, um, they have this very interesting, like close relationship with Hagrid uh, and, and they are not willing to extend that to people who claim to be Hagrid's friends. Um, so I find that that loyalty, um, curious I, I guess it's like how, how narrow it is okay. Um, okay yeah I have a question then do you think that it reflects Hagrid's general um, relationship to threat and that which is anomalous not only does he often like threatening beasts like fang and dragons and these giant tarantulas essentially but he also lives on the edge of the forbidden forest that sort of his relationship as if we take him as sort of a hermetic or divine being or some aspect of Albus Dumbledore, because when Albus Dumbledore disappears, so does Hagrid um, yeah. uh, and vice versa. Um, is it that his relationship to threat is that threat cannot hurt him because he is sort of a spirit of the forest, whereas the specific human who has to deal with threat does very much have to deal with the consequences of uh, the threatening anomaly. I'm, am I on the right track at all there? Yeah. Well, so, yeah, what I was kind of like thinking about was how the, the kids are the opposite, right? They trust the spiders implicitly right. because they trust Hagrid. And he kind of gave them this hint, like, follow the spiders, you know? And, and Ron is very, like, really quite uh, livid that they trusted Hagrid and went <laughs> along with it when they know that Hagrid is always taking care of these dangerous animals, right? So, but, but I think, yeah, it's interesting because Dumbledore in that same moment leaves a very important hint as well. So there is a kind of interesting parallel there. It, there there's something there. Um, I, I don't have the answer to the, to the thing, but I, I think it's an interesting 
it's an interesting little, it just jumped out at me, I guess. So, yeah. Well, yeah. And just maybe I'll ask Sarah this question. It's just that, um, well, once I know what the question is exactly that I'm formulating, um, it seems as if much of what this book is about is scapegoating. Who is the heir of Slytherin? Who's responsible and pointing the finger at the, in the wrong direction? It's Malfoy. No, it's Harry Potter. No, it was Hagrid. Actually, well, it looks like we're trying to point at this magical creature, which is very dangerous. And then we're trying, which is the tarantulas. And then actually it's the basilisk, but no, actually it's the person that opened the chamber of secrets and let the basilisk out. No, actually it's this disembodied spirit that represents evil that caught hold of the mind of this person who then let out this serpent and then attempted to kill people. It's as if it's like we're le leading up an ontogenetic chain from like, things we blame for the problems in life. And at the top of that, the answer seems to be, man, that it is the malice of humans that is the most evil thing, even more evil than the ultimate magical uh, predatory beast we can imagine. And we imagine two of them in this book. <laughs> and so my question, I suppose, would be is, do you think that's the thrust of this story? Even though it's in a magical world and there's a forbidden uh, forest and there's all sorts of stuff going on that would not happen in this conventional reality um, is is the, the build-up that we're moving towards that evil can take position possession of someone's mind and then they will find the tools necessary to act as ultimate predators against their fellow people well I certainly think um, I certainly think one of the kind of pervasive themes of the book is that even good intent is not sufficient for mm. um, or rather good intent or ill intent is not sufficient for determining um, someone else's goodness or illness or evil I guess um, I'm thinking uh, particularly like somebody characters like Dobby and Ginny that are powerless and or innocent for one reason or another. They're, you know, their Dobby does things that seem evil, but for good intent. Ginny's this very innocent vessel for really evil things. Um, you know, Harry doesn't mean to stick a snake on, what's his name, Justin, but um, everybody thinks that's what he's doing, even that, if that's the opposite of his intent and in reality the opposite of his actions um that like i think when i know alex maybe like a couple couple weeks ago or maybe about a month ago you brought up this idea of like ap um apprehension but not in the sense of like fear but how like appearance and how you come to understand something through sight hmm. um and I think it's interesting that all of the petrified folks uh, or all of the petrified beings, right, they haven't been killed because they haven't looked directly into um, the, the beast, but they've looked at something else that could possibly reflect their own appearance as much as it would reflect the eyesight of the basilisk like indirectly. I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. But you're making, you're making a lot of sense. But to get to get to your your question about, you know, is this book about like the evil that 
human beings are capable of doing to one another and and how do the monsters sort of represent that i really do think that um yeah like think about the characters in this book not the monsters but the characters who behave in a snake-like fashion huh. or the characters who weave a web for someone else to fall into um like uh i do think that spiders and snakes are um like not two sides of the same coin because there are a lot of other monsters that could give us a glimmer or a glimpse into the, the ways in which human beings can do evil to one another but they're pretty good places to start right. um tolkien too and the hobbit right both a big spider and a big snake uh yeah right and it, that 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 seems like a significant a significant comment that maybe Rowling is attempting to connect with, um, yeah, here's the evil that people can do. Here's how far we'll go to not blame ourselves. Um, and, and like, here's how deep that folly is. Um, and, and that maybe the greatest, the greatest antidote to that is, um, is the self-reflection or self-discovery that, it seems like Harry has to has to experience almost against his will. Um, right. I guess, but I, I would know. say by his will. He does. But, I mean, but does, but does he want to know these dark things about himself? Like, I, I don't think that it's the specific dark things that he wishes to know so much as he's compelled forward and chooses to follow the path where it leads. And so he feels a compulsion, but he chooses to act on it regardless of where it's going to lead. I mean, he's even willing to confront Hagrid, right? I mean, I thought that was a major moment where he and Ron were going to go down and talk to Hagrid very maturely and say, we know what you did and we're still your friend. I mean, that that's extraordinary that they're willing to mm. be so honest with an individual like that. Um, well, oh. and if I guess if they actually thought that it was Hagrid, then... Um, to me, that's an even greater sign about the book, maybe not only treating on um, the capacities that people have to do evil, but also the ways in which human beings have the capacity to, um, like through friendship, um, uh, like ameliorate what other individuals can do to one another. Um, and I and do that by, by saying like, listen, you're more than what the worst thing you've ever been or done. Um, you know, That's if they excellent. went to Hagrid, you know, like, cause, cause that, what that means is that the friendship that's being developed, not just between the three, but with all of the other characters, maybe, maybe going so far back to things like Harry and Dobby or Harry and Nick, uh, nearly headless Nick, these like unusual friends, like the hobbits and the Ents. Mm -hmm. That something about something about a friend is um, what perhaps holds the mirror up for you, so that you can come to know the good and the bad. And that, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds excellent. And I, I would just, I would ask this question too. Um, uh, that uh, it seems as if that's a major difference between Harry as person who takes path of the hero path of abel and uh tom riddle who takes path of sort of cain or the evil person that even though they have very similar skills what harry seems to do is be able to transcend the the moment in in the service of friendship 
to Hagrid or loyalty to Dumbledore or in the service of the the school. He's always attempting to bring people together as the, the Phoenix sort of symbolizes in, in showing back up or at least how Dumbledore analyzes that, that, um, that connection saying that the reason that Harry received the sword of Gryffindor is because of his loyalty to Dumbledore, sort of his loyalty to an ideal or his capacity to unite people as heroes. Whereas Tom Riddle or Lord, Lord, Lord Voldemort's specific action in the world is not only to divide people and to divide people from their own lives, but also to divide his very soul. And so it seems as if what part of the path of the hero is, is bringing people together in goodwill through one's actions uh, and having a willingness to be self-sacrificing in order to sort of imbue one's good spirit or heroic spirit into others as a spirit of unity or something like that. Because he even unenslaves Dobby, who I know Wes is going to tell us all about. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, do you think that, that that's, that's one of the fundamental differences? Yeah, Wes. That, that was that was to jump ahead a little bit, but the the the, the contrasts in this portion are really interesting. So we we talked a little bit about like the parallels, um, Hagrid and and Dumbledore, and of course the contrast Harry uh, and Tom Riddle, um, but also Harry and Ron, and how they are. Um, they're they're provided with a third member of their party here, uh, kind of accidentally, um, Lockhart. Uh, so I, I was really curious about how Lockhart's, um, you know, being being revealed for what he is uh, pl plays into this discussion of kind of what we see about heroism here. How Ron's broken wand becomes the kind of it it it's it sets up the dividing wall between him and Lockhart on one side and Harry on the other, and and what's going on in that moment. I, but here's here's the this this line that I really wanted to read out loud, uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and do that. Is on page two ninety seven, and Lockhart just says, "Books can be misleading." So, what do you guys make of that? Mm. Well, Lockhart, Lockhart's very interesting because something we know about Lockhart is that, and especially which is something revealed about him in the Chamber of Secrets, which is interesting that yet another secret is revealed in the Chamber of Secrets, that of Gilderoy Lockhart. How is it that he has become so famous? Well, it seems through dishonest or fraudulent means. And so he reminds me very much of like the symbol in Dante of fraud, of Gerion, the figure mm, of the yeah. just man with the the gaudy or garish swirls on the back. And that's something that's always paid close attention to in the description of Lockhart, the color of his robes mm -hmm. whenever he's uh, talking. And so he seems, especially with his flashing white teeth, to be a modern symbol of Gerion, of fraud. And in fact, he tries to wipe the memories of all people and including the hero, but uh, something that seems to be the specific capacity of both Ron and Harry uh, seems to be that... Harry can transcend the lie or that which is fraudulent. And that seems to be in some way connected to his capacity to, um, to break rules and to transcend the rules too. Ron, I thought was sort of interesting in that situation. I wondered whether it, it sort of showed Ron accepting his limitations being the key to his success because it is the letting or the allowing of 
Gilderoy Lockhart to use his his broken wand that ends up finally netting Ron a good effect from his wand rather than a bad one. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's been the bane of Ron's existence the entire book, but ends up being that which saves the day. And so it's almost as if like, it's like Ron's sort of opprobrious uh, uh, sidekick condition, which he seems so resentful of the entire book that actually lends him his ultimate value. <laughs> 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 it's like he has to accept who he is uh and that's when he becomes super effective again and helpful just like he was at the end of the first book when he played night chess this is a little less gallant but uh still equally helpful and then he gets left behind again um yeah the the parallels i thought i don't know which other ones did you notice here the parallels here at the end because yeah, Ron being kind of taken out um, and Hermione, of course, having been removed as well. So we have Harry set up 1v1 for the final battle, right? But uh, but also the, um, the kind of magical item which appears unexpectedly, right? Like that's a pretty clear, like it's almost like she's writing rewriting the ending of the first book, right? How, how formulaic I don't know if I want to say it that way because it's got a, I don't mean it to be like a negative thing. I, I just find it really interesting how, how parallel, how, how much art has gone into making this book sort of re, well, recast the first one. Yeah. I have a question. If, if what you're understanding is there just to sort of frame it past formulaic. So Jordan Peterson often shows this picture of the Bodhisattva, which is sort of like a, a mirrored image that goes on like 10,000 times. And it's supposed to be a representation of somebody maintaining their form throughout time. And I was wondering whether what you've sort of trying to be guiding us towards or what you've been feeling during the course of this book is that in some ways it is the same book as the first book with some minor alterations. And so it's not the same, but it takes sort of the same formula um, and, and then uh, alters it in some specific ways so as to um, so as to produce a new story with the same principles. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's kind of the 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 money maker too, though, right? Like looking at it from so like Lockhart as a kind of Rowling, you know, like the the bad side of herself or something that she's kind of working out in this book. Um, like she has this fantastically successful unexpected you know bestseller and then of course like okay you're invited to write the sequel um how are you going to approach that like well you know she's got the seven book series in mind but with the second book with the immediate sequel her her approach seems to be to to follow very 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 closely and and make sort of like um funny in, in their in their referencing back to the first book, right? Little changes, yeah. Um, but it also uh, it also sort of just reinforces how effective that first book was, right? Like how it really played upon so many um, so many great features of of literature and of storytelling, um, and so it's really it really makes sense that she would do something similar in the second book to kind of hit those same uh, notes once more um, with a, with a variation, with a kind of 
a, a little bit of development and a little bit of a, a twist, you know. Uh, so do you think that the snake skin at the end and the snake is a symbol of transformation because it, because it sheds its skin, that that shed skin hmm. is the shed skin from the first book and her <laughs> adapting and transforming and that the reborn Phoenix with the new sword that uh, mm. uses as pen to inscribe on our souls uh, is the sort of re-manifestation of the hero in a new guise in a slightly different situation for path wow. number two. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think. Like... Go ahead. I think what you'll find is that, um, or at least what uh, what I remember finding, is that once you get past number two, um, the books start to have. They have patterns, but the patterns are way, way less discernible. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms of their relationship or mirroring of the previous. I mean, because Wes, what you're suggesting, I think, is interesting, but also goes back to, um, like, Tolkien's, Tolkien's articulation of what makes the form function. And, like, I think he would suggest that every story has the same arc if it has the same effect, right? Certainly mm -hmm. it has the same like final rising action, climax and falling action, um, that it has to have that eucatastrophic moment of like things being darkest, you know, be it, you know, first year Harry without very many skills and without any of his friends, including the really smart one, has to face uh, this demon that killed his mother and try and get a stone that he can't find right that seems like you know things are dark um and then um the same happening here you know he's been wounded mortally by a, a poisonous snake and no weapon in sight and the embodiment of his mortal enemy again um and again without his friend and trustiest sidekick like there, there is something to be said for like the way in which it happens being parallel, but that it finally comes down to this final, um, like, like you said, 1v1, Harry versus the enemy. And like, like we said before, the enemy is both within and without. Um, it just has different, it has, it, it has different manifestations. It's, um, it comes from different, it is, it is a parasite on a, on two different hosts, right? Like, Instead of being the parasite on Coral's head, it's this parasite within a book. Um, but uh, it it has the same effect. And insofar as it does, that would make it less, I don't know, I think there's like an instinct to, for me at least, there's an instinct to dismiss it because it does seem kind of um, repetitive. So, um but I think from Tolkien's perspective, it would be like, this is the only way to do it because this is how things have to ha have to end in a fairy story, like the hero facing death and triumphing. Um, well, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And just something sort of interesting, potentially frustrating is that we have five minutes on Zoom before it kicks us off, but um, I don't think <laughs> we've quite done enough, but we should we should probably just end the recording uh, either then or or now and uh, then start let's say then just because I wanted to I wanted to address what you said um, really quickly because it seems like all right um, well 
after a note from our sponsors. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back. Stick around, folks. Don't yeah. that No kidding. Well, so so what I think you said that was really interesting um, was that that Voldemort seems to be a sort of spirit that is disembodied that can possess people in different ways and using different means by which to possess them given their specific weaknesses and their specific um, ages. For example, Quirrell is caught outside facing the unknown, trying to get some experience. So what he's facing is the insecurity of being a dark arts teacher who's never faced the dark arts and he's overwhelmed by them and the threat of evil. But so what gets Jenny is sort of a, a teenage fantasy about not being good enough for Harry Potter. Uh, and like she gets this sort of mm -hmm. advice from Tom Riddle that manages to wheedle its way into her soul in a way specific to a young girl who's in love for the first time. It's sort of suggestive, I think, that whatever circumstance you find yourself in in life, you can have a conflict with evil. And actually, you will have a conflict with evil that is specific to your character, your specific characterological weaknesses, and your specific situations in life. It doesn't matter whether you're at the most magical and safest school in the world. A magical evil object can still show up that can twist you into something that you are not. Uh, or even if you're a professor of the dark arts, you can turn to yeah. There's nothing that can protect you, seems to be part of uh, this story, except for, you know, you know, the sort of Gryffindor, the Logos, or um, uh, inoculating against evil. Yeah, what are you saying? I'm sorry. I was going to say friendship is like, I think the, not the thing that protects you from evil, but that sustains you as you face it. Right. And that, uh, yeah, there's nothing that protects you from evil, but, but maybe, you know, courage, or I would maybe say more than courage, but good character under pressure or what I would call integrity. So yes. remaining sure. loyal to the thing that is most difficult to remain loyal to when, um, when the going gets tough. But right. I would also say that like, if you think about how Voldemort is manifest, not in who it, who he becomes like this parasite on, but who that person or what that thing is within the scope of the, of the education world. Like the first, thing that he takes over as a teacher in the first book when Harry's like first learning magic and the second thing that he starts to use or operate on or through is a book so um it's I know it's something that you mentioned a long time ago Alex maybe it was just in a conversation off the podcast but that or maybe it was I think in the in the podcast where you talked about the the, the cover of the first book right that um that like part of education is uh, like facing, rather than shirking from what is frightening or ugly about the world or about the world, like the world without or the world within, part of education means facing down like um, the, the warts or the ugly things or the beast or the villain of history, of, of our own souls, like uh, and like books help you do that, of course, and discussions help you do that, and teachers help you do that. But that, like, it's, I just think it's interesting that that it's both a teacher and a book in two different in two different um, installments in the series that is like the the vehicle through which Harry has to encounter again, like both some darkness within and darkness without. Obviously, the darkness that he encounters within 
is going to grow increasingly complex the more that he matures and has language for new dynamics from within himself. I think as an 11 or a 12 year old developmentally, they're not there yet, like right. when he's 16. But. Right. All right. Well, let me call y'all back with this. Look. For All right. We're back. Sarah. So you were talking about how I was talking about in the very beginning of um, talking about Harry Potter. I analyzed the cover to the Chamber of Secrets on the American version. And something that I talked about in the figure of Cerberus and the bowels of the, the castle, as well as the Forbidden Forest on the outskirts of the Harry Potter logo, was that part of going to school is facing threat in, in order to inoculate yourself against its reality when you face it in reality. And so taking sort of a abstract version of the vaccination idea that when you vaccinate yourself, you in, imbue yourself with a small part of the disease, say like polio, and your immune system as an anti-fragile system, as Nassim Tlaib writes about, becomes stronger based on that. And that part of the idea behind education and reflecting on uh, literature, which goes all the way back to the Perseus Medusa story, is that you can inoculate yourself against certain terrifying embodiments of ideas in the world by seeing them represented in art and literature first. So for example, the archetypal story that Dante brings up um, in, uh, in, in At the Gate of Dis when Virgil and Dante are, are first uh, encountering uh, doubt or Dante encounters doubt about the abilities of his master because he fails to get him through an obstacle. Well, the Furies show up and Medusa shows up to petrify him with fear to keep him from pursuing the malice within his own heart, which all people fear. And so Medusa is a representation of the petrifying aspect of nature, which humans can run into symbolically in at pretty much any time, because that which you do not expect, which is anomalous, is conflated with threat. And so part of what we do by enculturating people, it seems, uh, by exposing them to literature and to new ideas and even to new people like teachers who have anomalous ideas themselves is to give students the capacity to reflect on threatening situations, people, and particular embodiments of threats in order that when real threats occur to, uh, in their lives, they are not petrified by them like those who see the basilisk through some sort of weak uh, reflection, but rather can uh, use the sword of the intellect, the, the, the phoenix-given sword of uh, um, Gryffindor, in order to heroically confront and engage with the threat, even potentially at the expense of one's own life. And that, that seems to be the difference between, say, a human and a rat, whereas a, hu a rat naturally has to act in an anxiety-driven uh, way when a threat is exposed, like the smell of a cat is wafted over a, a rat's cage, the, cat, the rat will run to the walls. Well, that's the truth of most humans too, right? We flee for, in terror in alien movies and in dragon movies, except one person. The one person who's the hero or walks the path of the hero, the one person willing to face Medusa, even through a reflection, is the person who engages with threat, who actually approaches threat and produces new information and extends known territory for people. It seems like that's the message of this text or one of the messages of it and of education that you are the thing that is strong enough to produce new information through an encounter with that which is truly threatening which most people in the world at most times ever would run away from and that seems to be what mm. harry is doing when he encounters a basilisk for god's sake um i mean he's a no i mean when he went against a troll he was overmatched 
When he went against Aragog, he was totally overmatched. Going against a Basilisk controlled by an older, like an older prefect stud boy who is the Prince of Darkness, essentially. No way. Right. Go out of his depth. Big Lebowski, you're out of your depth, Donnie. And yet still, because of the faith <laughs> he inspires or because of the loyalty that he, he is imbued with, there's just something about him taking that path makes it so that he is successful over darkness, even though he has no business doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that was a lot. But um, I, talking about the Medusa symbolism, I literally lectured on that today in my Dante course. So I was super hyped up on that. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Sarah. It could not have been a better, a better sort of setup. But do, I guess, is any of that on base, Wes slash Sarah? Uh, I, <laughs> talking, yeah. yeah. I, I think the, the idea of petrification and how it is related to um, losing faith in the people that you sort of trusted Right, and then the ways that you break out of that petrification once it threatens you are all really, really interesting with respect to what's going on here at the end of the book. Um, right, so like, like we said, like Dumbledore's off the stage, Hagrid's been taken to prison. We don't know how bad that is yet, but we'll find out, you know, how just how horrible that is. Um, and and in this confrontation where um, Harry is, is finally face to face with Tom Riddle. He doesn't even realize at first that he shouldn't trust this this spooky ghostly uh, kid, right? Like, it takes him quite a while to kind of put it together um, that this person is not his friend, uh, and th that's a kind of petrification too. I, I think um, it it's it's almost comical, right? Because uh, when the basilisk itself comes out, Harry's instincts are good. He he closes his eyes so as not to see it but then he's like he's just running around blindly and and Tom Riddle is just kind of um in stitches about it all uh and, and so it, it it takes something that's that's quite quite as far beyond Harry and Tom um as Tom is from Harry right this this a deus ex machina thing coming in to um to kind of restore uh the balance and allow him to actually confront uh confront the evil rather than being paralyzed by it blinded by it or, or what have you and you know that's um, interesting because it is precisely when the basilisk is blinded itself that tom riddle starts to reveal just how malicious he truly is that he shows his true yeah. nature so while harry is running around blindly like the hero he's a object of derision but the moment that tom riddle finds himself in a similar sort of situation he he he, rather than reacting with sort of like, I don't know, the eagerness and joy of the hero shows the cold malice of the Cain-like antagonist. Yeah. That he cannot deal with the situation in the same way that Harry does because he is on a very different path from Harry. Um, uh, I, the book, the book itself, what did y'all... So, Sarah, you were saying something about the nature of the book earlier that I, I thought was very interesting that I'm not sure that I, I fully comprehended. And I think you made a connection between the fact that uh, the threat in the second book is a book and there, there was a threat in some sort of similar way in the first book. Was, was that right? I'm sorry. I just, I might not have caught that fully. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess it's not a textbook or anything though. It was disguised among textbooks. Um, uh, just that it is a, it's a, it's a piece of 
leather and paper that you put ink on. Um, I, I think it's just interesting, especially given that quote that uh, Wes brought up given, and with regard to Gilderoy Lockhart's books, that like a book can be deceiving, a, a book can be dangerous. Um, I guess in a secondary world, a book can have a mind of its own and that's kind of frightening for us to consider like what kind of books in the primary world have such an effect on people. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously there aren't any books that if you write in them, they write back to you. But there are a lot of books that change people's worlds, right? That's for that sure. Alter the way they, they alter the way they, they think that perhaps drive them to actions and choice and, and to, to actions that they might not otherwise have taken. Um, yes. And, and what do we do with, with those books? Um, you know, uh, I, I, that was all I was saying about it, but well, know, I, yeah. a book, a book like a teacher is so often just immediately considered um, a thing uh, like a source of a source of 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 knowledge of you know learning but you know how that person interacts with the book is important as well i guess that's um yeah i i think you i think you're nailing on the head that basically what a story is or a book a book is a manifestation of the intelligence of a human throughout time that's codified in time so as to produce intelligence in a contemporary or present human based on the past uses of intelligence by other humans in order to encode behavioral, um, representational, and articulated knowledge into a new human, uh, sort of to infuse them with experience, the collected experience of someone's consciousness and conscious experience throughout time. And that, just like St. John's assumes, the great books are the teachers, it says. And you get exposed to the intellect and the sort of problems that another intellect can produce in order to form your own one. And in that respect, the authors can be sort of dark or evil and that they can impress upon you negative or evil thoughts and they can be good and that they can produce in you the capacity to deal with problems rather than um, simply becoming <laughs> your problems as the Tom Riddle book sort of does. It sort of, it, well, it sort of strikes me that what, the problem with Tom Riddle and Jenny's relationship to the book is, is that the book takes over the person rather than the book sort of consuming or rather than the person consuming the book. Um, yeah. And that's sort of a problem with not only contemporary scholars being consumed by their particular books and even the short-sighted views that they have of them. Um, but also I also, I saw, I, I was wondering whether this presciently sort of saw into the idea of uh, or this contemporary idea that books can traumatize and books can have words in them that have, that enact acts acts of violence against people. That if one is not appropriately inoculated against threat through story, that even a story can be uh, powerful enough to destroy your the straw house of your of your <laughs> of your known territory or your your conscious integrity. That um, that it is precisely because these individuals within Hogwarts had not been exposed to enough real danger that when danger rears its head, they were unprepared to deal with it in any way. Um, mm. And I wonder if that's the future. <laughs> this is a big, this is a big claim, but we're at the end of a book. So why not, why not, why not share a big hypothesis? 
I wonder to what extent we will pay for that in the education system, attempting to make anti-fragile systems like a human or a human's immune system, trying to maintain them in perfect safety, and to what extent that's actually harming students. Uh, we have data now that peanut allergies are actually on the increase because of lack of exposure to peanuts at, at a young age. So there are certain systems at play within the world that require stressors in order to be healthy. I think a human mind is actually quite the same. And that if you don't expose somebody's mind to actual terrors, and think about every story we teach even kids, they're dragon stories with knights and things like that, right? That's violent, that's scary. We don't not expose them to dangerous things. Where are the wild things? Not where are the, the cotton balls that can make you safe. Um, <laughs> and we don't find that interesting at all. And that's not what a human finds interesting. What a human finds interesting is something anomalous with potential for threat, but also promising, which is what a dragon or a basilisk uh, uh, guarding a treasure of information or a virgin or a girl represents, I think, that what we should be teaching our students and what the ideal stories like we've been saying that Tolkien is saying represent is a human's capacity to deal with threat and derive new information from it. Uh, it what we need to teach the young people and what I think we're learning ourselves is you have to confront for threat and there's no guarantee of safety. And that's, and that's the best thing you can do. Um, does that sound right? Yeah. Well, I like, I like the way that the, the battle plays out this time with, um, with the, with the tears of the Phoenix and how that sort of, I mean, I think that's a, a cool illustration of your point where the, the moment where, um, uh, Tom Riddle is is sort of narrating Harry's death, right? <laughs> this, is like, this is the pinnacle of the emotional um, hammer that this book is hitting you with, and so maybe the reader is is tearing up at this point too, and it's those tears of the phoenix of the bird which revive Harry, and so like the book comes to life in in the good way um, when you infuse it with your emotion. Um, yes. Th th there's a good way to do that, and, and clearly there's a bad way to do that, too. Um, and there is a certain kind of violence that a book can do, um, thinking of, you know, historical examples and, and whatnot. But, but I think the, the answer, yeah, is, is not to, to do away with books because they're dangerous. That's, uh, that's just not going to slay any basilisks or um, dispel any possession. Well, and the basilisks will keep coming, and the the weaker we get, the more a garden snake will be a basilisk. But I also wondered, is the Which, phoenix, are the phoenix tears cried on Harry's uh, arm that revive him? You you said that that's sort of the goodwill. Is is that also the loyalty of the readers mm. of Rowling, who who because of their continued shared interest in Harry Potter, make it so that he can be continually revived? like the, the, sh the snake shedding its skin or the, the phoenix rising from its ashes over and over again? Totally, that's, that's I think a really, um, a really cool way of, of seeing it as, as a kind of um, participation on the reader's part, yeah. Well, I think that's also sort of the key to being a hero, right? Because that doesn't leave us as the audience just watching the hero. That means that mm -hmm. what it takes for heroes to manifest in the world is a participation on our part. It's sort of almost platonic in that respect, that if you're looking for the heroes, and this goes back to our original thesis for this very podcast, right, Wes? If you're looking for a hero and you don't see one, 
what should you do? <laughs> well, yeah, try and embody it. Try and yeah. try and shed your own current skin and try and try and grab the tail of the phoenix as Harry is doing on the front of this Chamber of Secrets. I'm definitely going to do a lecture on this this cover. I've been wanting to for a while now. All these symbols mm -hmm. of threat, these snakes everywhere. Uh, right. Well, so well. Well, I think yeah. I, I was just gonna I was just gonna jump in and say I think in response to something Moist was saying about about um, you know you can't. Uh, eliminate the things that are dangerous but right. i think that's why gilderoy lockhart is like the worst not he's not just like <laughs> he's not just innocuously pathetic he's actually the greatest i mean he's like one of the greatest threats within the school um uh because he's his job he's abdicating his responsibility willingly or and like deceptively right to, right and he's the, not defending these students said, when they most need his help. Yeah, like the only thing to do, you, you can't like what? I mean, what are we going to say? Burn the books that are dangerous? No, that, that's a terrible Hunger Games type world that I don't want to be in. But um, like you have to still be um, armed with knowledge. And, you know, his is maybe the most important position. And he's the one who's the least capable and and I think it'd be one thing if he was trying really hard and still incapable. Right. It's another thing altogether to know that you're incapable, which is why, I mean, like, again, I feel like every time um, we have these conversations, I can't help but think of like our modern or contemporary political situation, but it's why people, I think like Alex Jones um, are, and I, I'm going to say it. I don't. I don't care who disagrees with me. That's why I think that they are, they are literally tearing at the fabric of democratic society, and they're just taking delight in burning it, because they know that what they peddle is, is a lie. But they don't care, and they take delight, or pleasure, or profit, in peddling it. Right. That that. Um, yeah, so I want to agree with that on a tangent. Not necessarily with Alex Jones, because I don't know him personally, though I've, I've heard he's something of a shock jock. But I would say that I think that that is the contemporary situation, not only there, but across broad media, that what what is now happening is that people are defrauding the public by trying to parade in front of people the, the Jerion-like, colored, garish, representation of knowledge and skill rather than producing the real goods themselves real information right. and real skills that it is as if that which is flashy and it, it, it takes very little imagination to imagine a uh, very flashy society think of just any cinematic experience and then also think about what a cinematic experience is uh, to imagine that that which seems to be replacing knowledge in school is that which is garish and flashy and utterly useless seems to be what Gilderoy Lockhart represents to me. And, and so, yeah, I mean, you contrast, we've talked about this for the last few times, we contrast uh, Dumbledore, who's absent, right. but quite knowledgeable, and Lockhart, who's there, but knows nothing, and now knows even less because of Ron's, like, right. backfire. Knows less right? than nothing. So then, but <laughs> he knows less than nothing, but. He but does I, not I, know himself. It's funny because like when the when um, Fox arrived arrived, it is quite flashy. I mean, it is it not flashy might not be the best word, but when Fox arrived, 
now that the hat itself is a piece of trash or appears to be a piece of trash and Tom Riddle makes fun of it right like oh that's what he sends you but but the description of the phoenix is quite beautiful and the way that the phoenix um dies is quite beautiful um the uh the 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 long colored uh peacock feathers and the um you know the way I, I can't find it because it because you can never find it on the fly. You know how that works. No, but um, but the but the the phoenix itself is is quite pretty. I guess it's page three fifteen. A glittering golden tail as long as a peacock's gleaming golden talons, um, and it's 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 gripping the um, the sorting hat. But a crimson bird the size of a swan piping its weird music to the vaulting vaulted ceiling like there is something really astonishing about it so it's and then in the in the end when when they fly out clinging to it this this thing that's beautiful and strange and mystic and mysterious and spiritual even and self-sacrificial um they cling to this this gift of Dumbledore who's absent but why you cling on to that and you, you cast aside the things that are false, that are, um, uh, you know, representations of false prophets or um, just deceit, like um, uh, what Gilderoy Lockhart represents in all of his books, like the attempt to make money by sowing fear or by lying, all of that, like that can, that does not stand up when the test arrives and I just I think that there's I mean I hate to say this because I don't want to reduce it to like pure allegory and I don't want to be like that that person who um you know because she went to a Catholic school and taught at Catholic schools can't see anything else but I can't help but see like you cling to this mystery that you don't understand but is beautiful and 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 like uh and and bewitching for lack of a better term, and it leads you out of these places of darkness where the where the false and the manipulative and the deceptive and the divisive um, do not do not win. I guess I can't help but see it as Christological um, uh, at the end. I mean, particularly at the end, like, um, and if Fox really is this beautiful, oddly weak yet oddly powerful um easily killed easily regenerated being then um that and then then fox crying for harry um those tears to me are like are are righteous and are supposed to be the the like the the lesson like that's what you should follow um do you know i don't know if that that makes any sense yeah yeah and just to maybe put it in even broader terms look it sounded almost as if you were dictating the cover, which I'm staring at as you say that, because what it, what it strikes me as is you've hit like one of the broadest themes of the text and perhaps the series, mm-hmm. which is the conflict between Gryffindor and Slytherin as manifested on this cover. You have, <coughs> yeah. you have Fox, which is crimson and gold like Gryffindor and his representation of Dumbledore, who is, we oh my God, I didn't even think about that. Who is himself a transfiguration teacher, we learn, not defense against the dark arts. 
And so something yeah. interesting about that is what seems to be specifically Gryffindor and what pulls them out of the Slytherin-like depths or the dark green depths is that they are willing to transform themselves, to change themselves rather than to attempt to force the world to be pure. So they, and if you want to take a purgatorial metaphor, which fits nicely with the gold and red colors of Gryffindor and of Fox, who himself purifies himself through fire, that what Gryffindors do, or the hero does, is rather than try to purify the world through genocide, he tries to purify himself of his own evil. Yeah. And that's what helps the world the most get rid of evil, when each individual but just to, focuses on his own. To circle, back to, what, to circle back to what we were saying earlier, you can't, you can't purify, as the case with Dante, too, you can't purge within unless you face it first, right? Right. Um, yes, there needs to be recognition of error. That's, that's the, first, yeah. the first part of the path. Right. You have to face the pain uh, of having made an error, of, of your own sin. I think that's even in Star Wars why Luke, when he, he goes to Dagobah where Yoda is, and he goes into this cave and he sees Darth Vader and he tries to strike him with a lightsaber, why he fails that task is because that is his projection of evil. That is his evil that he sees in the world. He needs to integrate that. He needs to recognize that that's part of him. And so, yes, absolutely. You can't just know that you have evil in you. You need to see the specific instances and ha you have to chew on that, uh, I would say. Um, right. You, yeah. It's not a simple or easy matter. If it were, everybody would be enlightened, say, says uh, Peterson or the unions. It's like, yeah, of course, if it were easy. No, you have to face some real snakes. And it turns out the snakes are in you these days. <laughs> <laughs> we're in our books and thus in us uh and thus we have to learn how to deal with them with some hopefully we have a sword that comes out of an ugly hat um Wes did you think I'm just toying with this is the hat sort of like the Shakespearean quote that all the world's a stage and during our time we play many roles that that one receives the sword of the hero when one wears the hero hat um that it is identifying with the way or the path of life that's most important rather than one's uh, congealed identity as one mm -hmm. thinks of oneself as pure blood or mud blood or whatever? Uh, yeah, I think it's a kind of um, symbol of Hogwarts too, right? It's, mm. it's the, um, the ritual of, of becoming a, a part of the school and being... Um, connected to an existing group of people there. Uh, and so in a, in a strange way, it's, it's, another, it's another reset from, from book one, right? Um, we missed the sorting hat scene in this book. Right. Uh, because we with the Whomping Willow. But here we, we kind of get it at the, at the end of the story instead. And as far as um, Dumbledore's sort of explanation of that, right? Uh, at the very end, he he kind of talks Harry Harry through his his lingering doubts about that. Um, trying to find it now. Yeah. It, about Harry being uh, about yeah. Harry being in in Gryffindor. Yeah, yeah. The Sorting Hat placed you in Gryffindor um, because I asked not to go in Slytherin, right? So he he chose ultimately. Um, yeah. So, sorry, go on. So I, I think I might have caused that awful sound, but what, what it seems like you're emphasizing is the biggest difference between the Gryffindor and the Slytherin, between the hero and the enemy, is choice. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and that's I think, something that, oh, no, go for it. Sorry. Um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic because um, he doesn't even realize what the sword is until after that moment, right? I, right. I think. Check the signature, buddy. It's a cool, it's a cool parallel to Tom revealing that he has rearranged his, his letters of his name to give himself a new name. Ah. Um, that, that this is like the, the name that would stand up to that name sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, almost, go ahead. Ooh, that's almost a great if, idea. Yeah. It's almost as if uh, the path of the hero inscribes your true name, whereas the sort of path of the enemy is to disguise who you truly are. They're mm-hmm. trying to uh, artificially alter your nature. It's as al- almost as if that's what the problem of the true antagonist or the ideal of the I- antagonist like as Lucifer or Voldemort is, is that what they attempt to do is change their nature so that they can be not human, but like a God. And, and that immediately puts them in the category of antagonist that must be defeated by human who pursues the appropriate path of nature by embodying the hero. Um, that the moment, you try to go against nature, you become not Eve, but Lilith, and you, you, you birth a thousand snakes into the world that must then be killed by the St. George-like Harry Potter, who I very much see him as an image, just to agree with Sarah from earlier, of St. George and his respect as uh, snake-killing, sword-bearing, uh, Christological or heroic figure in this- Against a giant monster in, in service of Britain. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, no, I, I, I really like that idea, though, that that the characters who seem to reject what they're made for are the ones who um, are the ones who set themselves up as antagonists. I would just also say that that's that's borne out by a lot of other fantasy literature, like, hey. for example, the White Witch in the Narnia series. We have to read those. Described Okay, so she's described she's described as being able to look like a human, but she's not. She's ah. a descendant of Lilith, actually. Ah. And and one of her one of her her great her greatest powers is to petrify, ah. uh, to turn things to stone. And um and her other power is to chain to conjure things from thin air, so like to yes. create unnatural food that Fabric. has an unnatural yeah, to fabricate and then to also change her appearance and, and, and to be deceptive. And I would say that, like, that's something also that, like, Saruman yes. um, from The Lord of the Rings is known for, is a, having a deceptive or a tempting voice, um, sowing division and fear, and then doing that which they are not made for. Like, the rejection of one's own nature, um, I think is it, really important, but I just wanted to go back to that thing that that Wes brought up about um, the hat and choices, because like, I do think that that is kind of part of what separates, that's also what separates Gryffindor from Slytherin is that like, it's not as though any one of them is like on this collision course where they have no free will, but that, that it, and it's something that Dumbledore com- says over and over and over again, that it is our choices that define us, not like what, not what, so it's an odd paradox, right? That like, it's not necessarily your nature that defines you. Like our nature is to be both light and dark, to have strengths and weaknesses, to have temptations and, you know, to, 
it is almost, it's like in your nature to be um, like, to have that potential for ill, but that your choice is what matters, I guess, yes. I think is an interesting paradox that like your nature doesn't define you. How you were born isn't who you'll be, except on the other hand, how you're born is also what you have to be, right? Well, it's almost like you're either producing the snakes or you're cutting the snakes away. And that that's, those are the paths. Mm -hmm. And that you do have a choice, but the paths are not infinite as maybe we suggest these days, but that in reality, there are two paths. You're either Lilith or you're Eve, or you're either the Abel or you're Cain, or you're Lucifer or you're Christ, or you're the hero or you're the antagonist. And I don't mean to be reductive, by that, but I think that that's just a very broad way of categorizing. You're either helping with the problem or you're helping to produce the problem. Um, but do you think, but do you think though that there's something about being the hero or the able that means to be otherwise? That, mm -hmm. yeah, Wes, like, you're, you're saying that, like that part of. Because I, I think that's where the choice is, right? That like, um, I, you know, I, I think about it maybe less in terms of the mythological characters and there's a choice to not be the thing that is, and be, to, there's a choice to be the thing that's good that you're made for as opposed to choosing to be otherwise. I mean, I don't think that we're either born either hero or antagonist but it's 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 the fact that the hero like consistently chooses chooses to i don't know i'm, yes. I'm losing my thought no i agree with that I, that it is the choices of the person that align them with the path of the hero that they must constantly make and that you are never guaranteed a position on that path like you're never guaranteed your footing on the right and i think surfing gone and I that like part of what he has to face, especially in this last chapter, is that, um, but also throughout the story, is that um, like maybe part of being the hero is is courageously facing what about yourself yes. might make you face might might tempt you to be the villain rather than the hero. I mean. Um, uh, the desire for fame is something that we've been talking about a lot. Like, or, um, yeah. or and the to choose otherwise is, yeah, like, like learning where your own darkness is, um, like where your own um, weaknesses are and the things that could be preyed upon by an external villain to make you your, your own villain or another, a villain right. to somebody else or in another story. Like that it, it that, that being a hero externally also requires, I think, maybe that internal um, facing of whatever is beneath the surface. Yes. Um, which is, I, I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. And I think, I think you could see like Gilderoy Lockhart. I think you could see Gilderoy Lockhart and Tom Riddle also as internal temptations of Harry Potter manifested in the story right. itself, that Gilderoy represents the capacity to use his fame and never become anything. And he could just rely on being famous and never develop skills and just be that sort of person. 
Whereas Tom Riddle shows, I think, a, a much even darker tendency, uh, the ability to use his fame to manipulate women who might love him and to do things that they might not be okay with, to compromise themselves in a way that I was suggesting potentially Tom Riddle had done in the past with Myrtle, uh, which is a theory, of course. Myrtle. But it's, yeah, and I think a dark way of looking at it, but if that is the ultimate struggle that Harry goes with and the desire is for him not to be like, you know, uh, Weinstein and hashtag me too, uh, that uh, that is a major accomplishment uh, on, on his part, not to misuse his fame and to show in fact that not everybody who has fame or skill is like that. And that in fact, the path of the hero is not aligned with that, mm -hmm. that, uh, that way of being at all. Uh, we, we have three minutes, Wes. How should we close? <laughs> uh, a reward. Yes. Um, so like, um, towards the end there, they, they reveal how Lucius Malfoy planted the diary in the first place on the transformation, transfiguration book back at the beginning. Um, so that Ginny found it. Oh, and, it was um, a transfiguration book. I didn't notice that. That's, I think so. And, so it's like and a Harry transformation. Good. Uh, yeah, you picked up her old transfiguration book and slipped the diary inside, didn't you? And he he figures this out because Dobby is like pointing at it and hitting his <laughs> head and like making big eyes at him and hitting. <laughs> him. And so then Harry, I guess, makes the further leap and says, "Oh wait, I can do that back at him. I can I can take this broken open diary, put it in this dirty sock of mine." and hand it to him, and then he will find the diary and discard the sock, and Dobby will catch the sock, and Dobby will be free. So it's like Harry, you know, does the, um, the, sort, of, the sort of comical one-upsmanship there at the end, but it's, it's really moving. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I was, I was more moved by Dobby's freedom than by Harry's being revived by the, by the Phoenix this time around. I, I just think Dobby's such a He's such a cute character. I just love it. And and I love that that's how the book ends, right? Like this this one loose end gets tied up here um and then we can we can properly go home to uh to the muggle world. Well, it's just like Dobby is like the Harry Potter of the second book because right before he gets freed, he's getting kicked around and we can mm -hmm. literally hear or <laughs> we can literally read and thus hear in our brains his screams. As that's happening, he's being mistreated by his master just as Harry Potter is mistreated as his home by the master of the home. And thus, he gets his freedom in the same way at the end of the second book that Harry Potter gets in the middle of the first book. And so it's almost as if what part of the hero is, like Sarah was suggesting earlier, is like that production of community that you, you, you add your liberty to others rather than enslaving them to your will like Voldemort mm -hmm. does to his followers. That you make the people around you better and freer through inviting them into your presence. Uh, <laughs> and we have less than a minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that's, that's as good a place as any to, to call it on this one. Um, looking yeah. forward to Prisoner of Azkaban, man. That's a good one. Do y'all want to do the first call three it, chapters? Oh, sorry. Go on. Sarah, sorry, we only have thirty gonna... seconds. But do y'all want to do the first three chapters, and then you can you can you can finish it until the the app closes us. <laughs> sounds good. No, that mm -hmm. sounds awesome. First three chapters, Dobby for president. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the first will be Dobby for Minister week. of Magic. Dobby for Minister of Magic. Tob he'd be a better one than the Fudge. 
the fudge maker we have there now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take it easy, fellas. I got to get going. All right. Thank you all. That was wonderful. Thanks. Until on to the third book. Have a good night. Good night. Bye.